Thank you for listening to this audio episode of Chronicles of War. I am the author, Darren Michael Shaw. Chronicles of War is a work of historical fiction. What that means is that I've combined research into the people, places, and events and taken just a little bit of artistic license to add some creativity and kind of flesh out the story. Throughout, I've worked hard to stay true to the records, surviving correspondence, and the spirit of those who are involved. I'm both humbled and grateful that you've chosen to download or subscribe to this podcast. Thank you. I hope that you'll enjoy this episode, episode number three of Chronicles of War. Job was up with the sun every morning. In 20 years of marriage, the only time he slept past sunup was when he had the typhoid fever back in 53. That was actually how Harriet knew he was sick before he exhibited symptoms. It was so unlike him to stay in bed. He was a fixture when she would rise in the morning, always sitting on the porch with a cup of coffee in hand and the good book open on his lap. She would watch him sometimes. He would glance down at the page for a moment, then raise his head to fix his gaze on the horizon. He'd sit like that for several moments and then repeat the pattern. Chewing the cud, he would say, whenever she'd ask what he was doing. Now that he was away, she held his Bible in her hands. It was well-worn, especially the pages that contained the Psalms, the cud he spent the most time chewing. In the back of his Bible were many notes written in his own hand. She looked through them. She came upon a list of all their children, names, the dates that they were born. Included on that list were the names of two dear children they had lost, Louisa, who had come prematurely and died within hours of being born, and Francis Leonard. Next to Francis' name, Job had scribbled the words, Why not me, Lord? As if it were yesterday, Harriet recalled that October morning in 1853 when Francis succumbed to the fever. Job had been the first to come down with the dreaded yellow jack. Harriet had experienced several symptoms, but her case was never more than mild. Nancy Ann, only eight at the time, had somehow managed to avoid the sickness altogether, even though she had taken an active role in helping her mom care for the rest of the family. Louis, at six, had given them all quite a scare. Many nights Harriet was forced to bathe him in the cold water of the river to reduce the fever. In time he recovered, but not Francis. He was just too little to fight, Harriet tried to comfort her husband. Job cried out to God, Why not me? Looking now at the words written in Job's hand, she ran her fingers across the ink impression, her eyes filled with tears. So faint that it was barely legible, Harriet noticed a note scribbled next to the name Louisa as well. It read, To Sam Twelve. Having been raised in the church, she recognized immediately that passage, the death of King David's child, where he grieved greatly, and then concluded that although his child could not return to him, one day he would go to the child. She was sure that was how Job had comforted himself in their great loss. Job wasn't a man who wore his emotions on his sleeve for everyone to see. When they had lost Louisa, and again when they had lost Francis, he maintained a very strong composure for her, she imagined. Also folded in the back of the Bible were lists of ciphers, page after page of scratches and tally marks. The weather, she thought to herself. Job was meticulous about observing and recording whatever patterns of weather they were experiencing and following them closely where his farming was concerned. She smiled as she read through what looked like foreign language to her, his own manner of shorthand that he maintained. Finally, there was one other note that caught her eye. The paper it was on appeared new in comparison to the others. 
folded, it was marked with the words, To my beloveds. Harriet unfolded the top, revealing the greeting. If you're reading these words, I'll not be returning home. Job expected the cannonade to start with the sun. Instead, the day dawned with a peaceful quiet. Even the winds that had swirled through the night had stilled. It was clear and brisk, not a cloud in the sky, a very different feel than any morning in recent memory. Job ordered his things as he waited for direction. Some twenty yards away, Colonel Milo Smith and the others, the company commanders, encircled an officer Job had not seen before. He is an amazingly groomed officer, Job thought to himself. The officer's beard was meticulously trimmed. His mustache looked as if you could hang a shirt from its stiff handles. The man's blue uniform jacket appeared brand new and was adorned with blazing buttons aglow. A cord dressed his shoulder, a sash elegantly draped his torso, and a sword that looked as if it were spit-polished for a parade completed his ensemble. Though the men were standing in marsh, Job noticed that this man's boots were virtually mud-free. Before the men, this officer was pointing to a drawing that topographers had been working on overnight with the help of guides and scouts. They huddled over it, every so often lifting up to follow this officer as he pointed at marked fixed locations on the field. Several of the men nodded, as if they were receiving direction. Others looked confused. This was the choreography of war, well-come to men in splendid uniforms dropping in to direct underlings who would, in minutes, hours, or days, maneuver their foot soldiers and artillery pieces into place. As Job surveyed those soldiers to his left and right, they were all shoddily dressed, unshaven, their hair must from having just rolled out in the morning, and no doubt many days in which the only tonic their scalps had seen was sweat, dirt, and wind. Colonel Smith, for his part, stood expressionless. Occasionally he would look away from the officer's gesticulations and glance back at his men, nearly meeting Job's eyes, it seemed, each time. Smith was a hard man to read. He wasn't known as a particularly warm man. Five years Job's senior, he had been commissioned by Colonel Kirkwood when the war broke out and assigned to form the 26th. Rumor had it that Smith was not at all thrilled with having been selected by the governor, but served out of a sense of duty. He had made a reputation for himself as the chief superintendent for successful railroad companies in Iowa and Illinois, and was known as a methodical man, driven to complete tasks in pursuit of a goal. The meeting broke up. Most of the company commanders returned to their men, no doubt, to put the officers' directions to work. A few of those who had looked confused studied the map that the officer left behind, Smith among them. These men seemed to be agreeing with one another. Their confusion looked every bit the part of concern now. Mother, a letter has arrived from father. Lewis shouted as he ran with the letter held overhead. Harriet rose from a stoop position in the garden and wiped her hands on her apron, eager to receive the envelope. From inside the house, Nancy Ann had heard her brother's approach and stepped out the door. "'What does it say, Mother?' Lewis began asking before she had even managed to unfold the note. "'Give me a moment,' she instructed. "'My dearest heart, tis three days after Christmas. I'm heavy burdened to have missed the celebration with you. Did you and the children receive the gifts I sent? Robert Dupree was to have delivered a package to you on Christmas Eve. I trust he succeeded. The days continue to move slowly for me. Not an hour passes that I fail to utter prayers for yours and the children's well-being. How are my precious girls? How are my fine young men? I long to hear from you, but expect that correspondents will have difficulty finding me. We've moved again, twice since the last dispatch. 
The Army of the Mississippi, as they now call us, has been engaged at Chickasaw Bayou. Tis a godforsaken swamp, from what I've seen. Our company has been kept well away from action. I'm thankful, mind you, but I'm also growing weary of the constant movement with no real concept of progress in view. So tell the children that their father is marching for the sake of our country, and that he is marching very well through all the swamp land of Tennessee. We're stationary at the moment. The brass apparently are revisiting their maps. Certainly they will find a new swamp for us to traverse in order to preserve the Union. Thomas the Cooper has not ceased in asking if I've sent his greetings to Nancy Ann. He's yet to ask me whether he can write her. Perhaps I'd let him. I'm taking sinful pleasure in his uneasiness to ask. Your father would be proud of me. Do you remember how he thrilled to watch me squirm before him? I've heard reports of heavy winter there. Here we're very cold, but no snow. Many of our number are ill, owing to exposure, I'm sure. I, however, am well fit. The Lord provides strength for this old man like the widow's oil. Now if only he would hasten the days. We're rumored to board transports again and move downriver. I believe I'll be able to make dispatch there and write you again. My heart will ever belong to you. Tell my children that I love them and that I march. Your husband, Job. This concludes Episode 3 of Chronicles of War. You can download individual episodes or subscribe to the podcast at my website, www.darrenmichaelshaw.com. The podcast is also available through iTunes by searching my name or the title, Chronicles of War. If you've enjoyed the story, please tell others about it. You can find more information about me and my writing at my website. Please stop by. That address again, www.darrenmichaelshaw.com. I look forward to bringing you the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.